We're taking a break from our Revelation series this morning since I just finished the seven seals last week and I'm not going to be preaching next week as I'm taking a week off and we'll have other preachers next week. So I'm not going to be preaching again uh, for a couple weeks now until May 28th and I just didn't think it made sense to start the seven trumpets only to take a break next week anyway. So I've been planning to just preach a sermon this morning that stands on its own and is not part of a larger series. And I've been praying and, and thinking about it all week. And I've done some work on a number of texts in the Psalms, in Colossians, in Romans, in Luke. But for whatever reason, none of these felt like the timely message that the Lord would have me bring this morning. Finally, I settled on revisiting this passage, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 which I have preached before, and some of you will recall the teaching of this passage. But I, I do think it may be timely and helpful this morning to revisit it, since I know that many of you are struggling with difficult life circumstances this morning. And I hope and pray that this exposition of these verses will be a helpful and ultimately encouraging reminder of what God is up to. During, during our difficult times. So, many people say, right, you've heard this before, God will not give you more than you can handle. Well, according to the text we're looking at this morning from 2 Corinthians 1, He will. We should address head on the text in 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says this, No temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now I know some of you will have that text in your mind every time that I say, God will give you more than you can handle. And so it's important that we address this objection head on. And here's the resolution of it. That passage in 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about temptation. And this passage in 2 Corinthians 1 is talking about affliction. That passage teaches you that God will never put you in a position where your only option is to sin. God will never put you in a position where your only option is to sin. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will provide a way out. Our passage this morning, however, in 2 Corinthians 1, teaches that God will put you, at times, in a position of great affliction, where you're in over your head, and you're unable to sustain or rescue yourself, and your only option is to rely on Him. That's what I mean when I say this morning that God will give you more than you can handle. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 doesn't contradict that. So it stands. God will give you more than he can handle, more than you can handle, pardon me. So let me explain and expand upon that. And let's note, just in, in examining the text and its meaning, that that's exactly what he did to Paul and his companions. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 8, which I read for you a moment ago. Paul tells us that he and his companions were, quote, utterly burdened beyond our strength. End quote. 
Well, that's, that is literally the very definition of being given more than you can handle. It's being burdened beyond your strength. God will give you more than you can handle. Exploring this truth and its applications is, is the main point of the message this morning. But let's, let's back up and pretend you don't know that yet. And let's examine together Paul's affliction referred to in verse 8. It's most likely when Paul says that, that they were burdened beyond their strength that he is referring to the riot in Ephesus which is described in Acts chapter 19. And you can go read that on your own time if you like. Verse 22 locates Ephesus in Asia, and there's no biblical data for any alternative ministry in Asia. So that's most likely what Paul's referring to, but it makes no material difference for our purposes this morning whether that incident is exactly what Paul is referring to or not. Since, as one commentator puts it, Paul is here emphasizing the intensity of the, flick, of the affliction rather than the fact of the affliction. So take your pick of Paul's afflictions. It really could have been any of the ones that he experienced. Uh, he has a list in 2 Corinthians 11, and on that list is imprisonments, countless beatings, near death often, Receiving 40 lashes minus one on several occasions. Beaten with rods three times. Stoned. Shipwrecked. Not just shipwrecked, but shipwrecked three times. Adrift at sea, a night, night and day. Danger from robbers. Danger from both Jews and Gentiles. Danger from false brothers. Sleeplessness, hunger, thirst cold and exposure. These are things we know Paul went through. So whether he's talking about the riot in Ephesus or whether he's thinking about being shipwrecked or adrift at sea or or beaten or whatever, it's kind of neither here nor there. The, The point is, it doesn't really matter to the theology of 2 Corinthians 1 specifically what afflictions Paul experienced in Asia that he's referring to. The point is that his affliction was so intense that he was burdened beyond his strength and despaired of life itself. Now, Paul was a missionary. He was a career missionary. He went on extended missions trips. Now, let us imagine together that a missionary was sent out from this church. During the course of this mission trip, however long or short it was, whether the guy was gone for a month or whether the guy was gone for six months or two years or whatever, it doesn't matter. He returns to us and he reports that he experienced imprisonments, countless beatings, near death often, receiving 40 lashes minus one on several occasions, beaten with rods three times, stoned, shipwrecked three times, adrift at sea night and day, danger from robbers, danger from Jews and Gentiles, danger from false brothers, Sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, cold, exposure. And when he returned, he related these things to us and said, I was burdened beyond my strength and despaired of life itself. Wouldn't many of us be tempted to say, what, how does the phrase go? That was a missions trip from hell. Right? That would, be the, that would be the phrase that would come to mind. Right? 
Isn't that the way that we often think about Christian ministry? And in fact, it's the way that we often think about all the suffering or all the affliction in our lives. If suffering comes into our life, if affliction comes into our life, if we try to do something for God and it meets with opposition and hardship and difficulty and it's not smooth, we think to ourselves, this is the work of Satan. This is the work of the devil. This is a missions trip from hell. Or this is a week from hell. Or this is a month from hell. We say, if things are not going well, Satan must be really having a field day. We think when we are in the midst of affliction, surely God is not causing this affliction. Surely God is not behind this. And so we think it must be Satan's doing. Well, this is the very assumption that 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 confronts. In Paul's case... It was God behind the affliction. Sure, evil men acted. I mean, whether it was the riot in Ephesus or being unjustly beaten or danger from robbers or whatever, evil men acted, yes. And no doubt Satan was afoot. Satan is real and active in this world and the rest of the demons. But in it all and over it all, superintending it all, was God. Look at verse 9, as I endeavor to prove this point. In verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 1, we see the language of intention. Why did Paul's sufferings occur? Look at verse 9. To, or in order to. This was to, this was in order to, right? That's the sense of it. The purpose of this was so that, that's what that too means, make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. There is a language of intention here. Someone planned and purposed that Paul and his companions would be utterly burdened beyond their strength. Well, could Paul do such a thing to himself? No. You're not in charge of unfolding the events in your own life. Neither neither was Paul. We can't script what's going to happen to us in various situations. Therefore, Paul is not the orchestrator, the planner of the affliction that he describes in 2 Corinthians 1.8. It was not Paul's plan and purpose to utterly burden himself beyond his strength so that he despaired even of life itself in order to make himself rely on God. That's not the sense of the passage here. Well, who was it then? Satan? Well, would Satan make a plan to unfold the circumstances of Paul's life in order to make him, make him rely not on himself, but on God? No. Of course not. Would it ever be Satan's intention to afflict someone in such a way that they are utterly burdened beyond their strength so that they learn to rely not on themselves but on God? No, that's not the work of Satan. So, by process of elimination here, the implication is clear. It wasn't Paul who who intended this suffering, this overburdening of Paul for his good. 
It wasn't, it wasn't Paul who did that. It wasn't Satan who did that. It was God who intended this overburdening of Paul so that he would learn not to rely on himself, but to rely on God. Therefore, Paul's mission trip to Asia was not a mission trip from hell. It was a mission trip from heaven. Now, could it be likewise? As you're going through stuff and you're saying, well, this is a week from hell. This is a month from hell. Could it be that the suffering in your life, the circumstances that you think are from hell, could actually be from heaven? Well, it couldn't be, you object. God will not give me more than I can handle. Well, according to this passage, that objection doesn't stand. God will at times give you more than you can handle. Let's consider now, since that is the case, why God may cause affliction. We can see clearly from our text that God was sovereignly behind Paul's affliction. To be sure, to be sure, employing Satan's schemes and employing the actions of sinful men. I'm not negating that people sinned against Paul. I'm not negating that Satan was afoot. But God was sovereignly behind Paul's affliction. And we can infer then that at least at times He might be behind ours also. What might the purposes of God be in our affliction then? I don't propose to provide an exhaustive answer, but I do want to examine at least one purpose in some detail which is the purpose stated here in this text. God caused Paul's afflictions, though he used means. And God intended Paul's afflictions in this particular case in order to make Paul rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. The goal of Paul's afflictions was to elicit a deeper reliance on God. This is at least one of God's purposes in the affliction that He sovereignly ordains for us. That we would rely more fully on God. Now what is the significance of this phrase at the end of verse 9? That was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God can raise the dead, then surely He can rescue or sustain the living. Therefore, we can trust Him. We can rely on Him in both death and life. You can think about it like this. If this affliction kills me, then God will raise me from the dead at the end of all things. If God is able to resurrect me, then surely He is well able to rescue me from this affliction that I'm undergoing, if that be His will. And if God is able to resurrect me, and it is not His will to rescue me, then surely He is able to sustain me in this as long as this difficulty and this trial lasts. See, if God raises the dead, 
then we may entrust ourselves to Him, not only in death, but also in each and every circumstance of life. Who is more qualified to rely on than He who raises the dead? Now at some point, at this point, some skeptic might raise the objection, but God won't raise the dead. (laughs) According to this passage though, and the rest of the scriptures, Oh yes, He will. He's called here in this passage, God who raises the dead. In Acts 2.31, we read this, Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did His flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And the scriptures speak of the resurrected Christ as the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for dying. And just like the first piece of fruit born by a tree in the right season is a predictor or a harbinger of more fruit to come, so the resurrection of Christ is a harbinger of more resurrections to come. But each in his own order, the scripture says, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now at this point we come naturally to the most pressing application that I will make today, which is this. Do you belong to Christ? If not, you may. Even this morning, you may trust in Him to save you from the penalty of sin, from its power. Even this morning, you may repent, turn around, turn away from pursuing the sin that you're pursuing and walk instead toward Jesus and towards the Christ-likeness that God intends for His people. Not no longer guided by your own sinful desires and just aimed at self-gratification, but to live a new life governed by God's law and aimed at God's glory. Repent and believe that Jesus' sinless life is all the righteousness you need and that His wrath-bearing, penalty-bearing death is all the propitiation that you need to turn God's just wrath away from you. Repent and believe, and even this morning you may come to Christ and make this hope of resurrection your own. Christ the firstfruits, and then that is coming. You. So let's summarize so far before we move on. We know from this text, 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9, that God ordained, purposed, meant, intended, and in some sense caused the affliction that Paul experienced in Asia in order to make him rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. If God did that in this case with Paul, it stands to reason that at least at times He may do it here and now with you and with me. Sometimes, not all times, but sometimes God's very purpose in our lives, what He is up to, what He is intending to do in our lives at times, is to utterly burden us beyond our strength so that we will learn to rely on Him more fully. This is the theology of this passage. For the remainder of our time together this morning, let's consider the application of this passage. As I mentioned a moment ago, if you do not yet belong to Christ Jesus, if you're not yet trusting in Him, the first order of business is to repent and believe. The remainder of 
the application that I will make this morning has no real relevance to you until you belong to Christ. For I'm dealing with the matter of God's purposes in ordaining affliction for those who are His. With that in mind, let's move to the application for believers. When you come to a situation in which you are burdened beyond your strength, it's analogous to coming to a junction in the road with a few different turns you can take. You find yourself in this situation where you're utterly burdened beyond your strength. Now you've got a few roads that you could take in front of you. The first turn you can take is to try to change your lot in life. So your lot in life is very difficult. You're utterly burdened beyond your strength. And you try to change it. Now, I'm not talking about, let's say, you're very sick. And there's medicine that you might take which might help you get better. I'm not talking about that. I mean, that's just, that's just prudent, wise. Yeah, obviously try that. You know, or, or likewise, if you're unemployed and you're finding it hard to make ends meet, well, you could try to change your lot in life by getting a job. I mean, that's, that's, that's good, that's common sense, that's wise, etc. This is what I'm talking about. This is, this is what I'm saying is a temptation for us, which is not good. Trying to change our law in life in this sense. You're burdened with poverty? Well, you could reach out your hand and steal. You're burdened with a difficult marriage? Well, you could, you could abandon that marriage. You could find someone else that makes you feel happy. Right? You are burdened with the calling of God on your life? Well, you could forget about what God has called you to do and find an easier job. Or whatever the case may be. That's what I'm talking about. Bucking against God's providence here. Where there's no, there's no lawful way to get out of it. But you don't care. What you, what you want to do is you want to resist what God has appointed for you. And you're willing to go outside of the parameters of what God says is legitimate means of trying to get out of this situation, like medicine or getting a job or whatever. And you're willing to say, I don't submit to whatever God has ordained for me in my life. I don't submit to this providence. I will buck against it. I will try to get out of it, even if it means sinning. Don't like God's providence? Try to rebel against it. Author your own story instead of letting God write yours. Grab the bull by the horns. Take charge of your own life. Like William Ernest Henley said in his poem Invictus, be the master of your own fate. Be the captain of your own soul. When we are burdened beyond our strength, let's be honest, that's a temptation, right? That's the first turn that you can take when you're burdened beyond your strength is to rebel against the providence of God in your life and try to change the story that God is writing for you by sinful means. Obviously, it's the wrong turn and it never ends well. But we need to recognize that that is going to be a temptation that we face when we are overwhelmed. 
when we're burdened beyond our strength. The second turn that you can take is to rely on yourself. The third turn that you can take is to rely on God. Let us look at those two together and see that it is the third turn, obviously, that we ought to take. Rely on God. First, relying on God means not relying on yourself. Obviously, that's explicit. God burdened Paul beyond his strength to make him rely not on himself. So when you are utterly burdened beyond your strength, the response that God is seeking to elicit is not merely, note that word merely, it's not merely to try harder, to do better, to lift yourself up by your your bootstraps, so to speak, or your shoelaces. Now there is a balance to be struck because God does want us actually to try hard and to do well. And you do read things in the New Testament like this. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And act like men. Be strong. So God does not refrain from exhorting us to effort and to fortitude and to perseverance as if these are somehow inconsistent with relying on God. Yet there is still this intention in God to make Paul not rely on himself. What is in view is the sort of self-reliance championed by many in our day and age that uses words and phrases like this. The triumph of the human spirit. Right? Believe in yourself. Dig deeper. Right? You can do anything you put your mind to. Or as my usual example of this mentality, our good pal David Goggins would say, stay hard. (laughs) Many people think, or at least they act like the human being is a bottomless well of untapped resources and potential. You, you, You say, I'm utterly burdened beyond my strength. And David Goggins says, no, you're not. You just don't know how much strength you've got. You haven't, even, you haven't even gone into that darkness yet. You've got to get into that darkness. And you've got to find that strength that's there inside you. And don't say, David, you're different. I'm not different. I can do it. You can do it. Right? You understand? This is, this is what is meant by not relying on yourself. It's not thinking that we... It's not rejecting the concept that it actually is possible to be burdened beyond our strength. There is a category for, I don't have the strength to do this. And when you get there into that, I don't have the strength to do this, the solution is therefore not to look inside yourself for the strength to do this. Right? If God has laid this affliction upon me, the reasoning goes, then God must believe in me. That I can access the resources and potential within myself that I will need to get through this. After all, the thinking goes, God will not give me more than I can handle. It is this kind of relying on ourselves that God does not want. Fortitude, yes. Perseverance, yes. Strength, yes. Act like men. Be strong. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. But sometimes, nevertheless, you come past the end of yourself. 
God is taking you into the deep end and He's drowning you, so to speak, utterly burdening you beyond your strength so that you can see just how finite and weak and helpless you are so that you see that you cannot always rescue or sustain yourself. And we move now towards relying on God. God is doing this so that you cry out to Him with a childlike faith I can't do it, Father. Help me. So that the childlike song comes forth from your heart. Little ones, little ones, to Him belong. They are weak. I am weak. But He is strong. We are not to rely on ourselves, but on God. And what do we rely on God for? Well, let's circle back around to what I was saying to you before. The logic of this passage is, if the affliction kills me, then God will raise me from the dead at the end of all things. If God is able to resurrect me, then surely He is able to rescue me from this affliction, if that be His will. And if God is able to resurrect me, but it is not His will to rescue me from this affliction, then He is well able to sustain me in it for as long as this affliction lasts. So there are three possibilities of how a situation of affliction could turn out for a Christian. The first possibility is that the affliction doesn't end well for you in an earthly sense. Worst case scenario, you die. Right? Of course, contrary to prosperity gospel teachers, this happens regularly to the faithful. Christians die in car accidents. Christians die of cancer. Christians die of malnutrition. Christians die from persecution. Consider the Apostle James. Acts 12 tells us that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Sometimes our affliction ends in death. So we're not necessarily to rely on God for rescue in the here and now. We can't just say, well, I'm, I know that God is going to raise me up from this sickbed. I know that that this isn't going to end in death for me. I'm not relying on myself. I'm relying on God. I'm relying on God to heal me. Right? We can't can't just assume God's going to rescue us. Sometimes He doesn't. But if He doesn't, don't worry. He will raise you at the end of all things. Right? So, sometimes you're relying on God for a resurrection. But sometimes God does give a rescue in the here and now. Certainly He is able to. If it is that He is able even to resurrect us. And in fact, rescue is what God did for Peter. In the same instance of persecution in which James was killed. Acts 12 goes on to say that when Herod saw that the killing of James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So what's he going to do to him? Kill him. But in this case, God miraculously rescued Peter. We won't won't turn there this morning for the sake of time, but you can read about it yourself in the rest of Acts chapter 12. So when we rely on God in the midst of affliction, 
God may allow us to die. But in that case, He will resurrect us. Alternatively, God may rescue us when we rely on Him. Like He did with Peter. James got a resurrection. Peter got a rescue. Right? There is one more possibility. Resurrection. Rescue. The third possibility is that God may sustain us in affliction. Consider God's sustenance of the early church in persecution. In instances where He neither rescued them from it, nor allowed them to die from it. For example, in Acts 5, we read that the Jewish council called in the apostles, beat them, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. What happened then? The apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. God sustained them in the midst of their affliction. And then there is the well-known instance of Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns at midnight in a Roman jail. God sustained them in it. So sometimes God doesn't allow it to kill you, but He doesn't rescue you from it either. You have to go through it, but He sustains you in it. When we rely on God in the midst of affliction, we may die. In which case, we're relying on Him for a resurrection. Or we may be rescued. But if it's not resurrection or rescue and we've got to go through it, then midnight can find us singing. Like Paul and Silas. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. And when sorrows, like sea billows, roll. Whatever my law. Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. When darkness veils his lovely face, what do I do? I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. You may be utterly burdened beyond your strength. There is a category for that, biblically. And God may have put you there, done that to you on purpose. To bring you to a childlike place where you are prepared to say, Not my will, but thine, Father. I am weak, but you are strong and good, and wise. And whatever you intend to do in your sovereignty, I will rely on you. If you slay me, then like Job, yet shall I praise you. If you rescue me, then like Hezekiah, I will declare your faithfulness to the next generation. And if you choose simply to sustain me, 
and make me go through it and keep me in it. Then every night, like the psalmist, I may flood my bed with tears. But like the psalmist, I'll also hold on to your promises. And I'll pray and sing with Paul and Silas in the dark of the night. Do you see the comfort that it is to have the God who raises the dead on your side, beckoning you to rely on Him? It doesn't mean that that if God's on your side, you're never going to be burdened beyond your strength. In fact, if God is on your side, He may just put you there on purpose to deepen your reliance on Him. We Christians may be burdened beyond our own strength, but we'll never be burdened beyond the strength of God who raises the dead. So in a sense, we can't lose when we rely on God. If our affliction kills us, God will resurrect us. And if it doesn't kill us, then God is either going to rescue us from it, or He's going to sustain us in it. When God gives you more than you can handle, it's never more than He can handle. So rely on God. He will either resurrect you, or He will sustain you, or rescue you.